Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I'm glad you're here today. I have a wonderful guest who's really different from the other guests that I've had so far. And you're going to love her. She's just a, a beautiful woman and is doing unique work. And, and I admire that. And she she goes by the grave woman. So hello. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Hello, Emily, and thank you so much for having me. Hello to your wonderful listeners around the world. My name is Joelle Simone Maldonado. And as Emily stated, I go by the moniker, The Grave Woman. I am a sacred end-of-life and grief care professional. I am an award-winning educator and founder of the Black Death, Grief, and Cultural Care Academy. I specialize in in educating professionals about the importance of cultural competency, inclusion at the end of life, death, and in grief care. Yeah, I just think that's so important. I I see a lot of things that people do about grief or that I hear or read about. They just assume that everybody's the same. And there's so many different cultures and around the, I've been seeing such interesting things around the world that, that different cultures do that we don't do in, in the U.S. And it, it there needs to be a sensitivity for people so that they can have what they're comfortable with and what they want for the dying person and the families and, and the friends and anybody who surrounds them. So how how do you go about doing that? That's an excellent question. And it's something that I'm kind of working through trial and error doing. Um, for the majority of my career, I've done that in the funeral home setting, I'm working with various funeral homes in Georgia and helping out here in South Carolina. I've recently moved to South Carolina, but In the pandemic, my work shifted from working with families who were grieving and making funeral arrangements and caring for the deceased physically in the funeral home to educating online. And so the way that I do the majority of my work now is through social media, through YouTube, through my podcast, and through my academy. That's wonderful. Uh, Tell us about your academy. So basically, the Black Death Grief and Cultural Care Academy is an online end-of-life and death care academy dedicated to sharing sacred art, wisdom, and knowledge of caring for Black bodies in transition and after death. It was birthed really out of the lack of formal education around caring for Black decedents. When I was in mortuary school, No one in my textbooks looked like me. My professors outside of maybe one or two did not look like me. And when we worked on bodies or cadavers, for the most part, the funeral home that I worked with was traditionally and historically white. And so there were no considerations about how to care for Black hair, Black cosmetic care, phenotypical differences, and even how to have conversations with Black families around death and around grief. 
And I had some pretty horrific experiences that were rooted in racism and ignorance. And Mm. in 2020, I'm pretty sure that we can all remember um, the massacre of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. And my initial response to the way that his body was treated publicly was anger. But I also saw that as an opportunity to educate my coworkers, people that I was training about how to really care for Black people that are dead, that have died in various various ways, and how to care for their families and have conversations about what those specific needs were. And so it really started there talking about hair, again, cosmetic care, phenotypical differences. But then I realized that there was no conversation about cultural intelligence or cultural competency around Blackness. And so I started having those those conversations. And it's expanded in the last year or so from just having conversation with funeral directors to now having conversations with death doulas, end-of-life workers like healthcare professionals, firefighters, police officers. And so it's expanded in a way that I really didn't expect, but that I'm so grateful for. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing that work. I I really see the the need for it. Um, my last husband was black, and his mother came to live with us. Uh, she lived with us for a few years at the end of her life, and she was an elegant lady. She was just beautiful, and she lived in Los Angeles, and she could get all the hair care and cosmetics and anything she needed down there. But where we lived, it was north of Los Angeles on on the coast. When she moved in with us, we couldn't find any place to get her hair done. And it it was a, a real challenge. So we ended up, uh, my son was able to drive her to Los Angeles when she needed to get her hair done or buy makeup because right. it just wasn't <laughs> available there. And I think people don't think about things like that. And then if it comes to somebody dying and, and ending up in, in a funeral home where there aren't any people uh, that know about that kind of hair or makeup are, that can Mm -hmm. be very sad for the families and and what turns out. It can. And what's so interesting, and thank you for sharing that story. What's so interesting is that that was acceptable in our industry prior to COVID. And it was acceptable because, especially here in the South, I don't know about in California, but Black people went to Black funeral homes. White people went to historically white funeral homes. Hispanic and Islamic families, they went to either or. But during COVID, people were literally lining up outside of funeral homes asking if we had availability or vacancy at white Mm -hmm. funeral homes, white people showing up at Black funeral homes. And it eliminated that invisible line of segregation that still existed in 2020. And so it became, in my mind, as it should have been, where professionals were now responsible for caring for people that looked, prayed, worshipped, and grieved differently than maybe your traditional customer. There's there's just so much to that. I, I talk to people from different cultures and different places around the world with the podcast, and I think a lot of times... People don't consider cultures outside their own. They just don't think of people being any different than they are. And then when they realize they are, it's it's a problem. Like I lived in a 
in California in a small conservative town for for not small. It was a big conservative community. And one of the people that worked for me was Jewish. And he was somebody, he, they lived, his family was back on the East Coast. And one of his family members had died. And he was saying that they were having a hard time because it was at a time where where it was a problem that they they had to, it was essential that they were buried with a certain within a certain number of hours in a certain kind of box that wasn't the big fancy caskets that are are known with the concrete uh, vaults and everything and that they were they were adamant about that's what had to be and they were having a really hard time where they lived getting someone to do that and he was just beside himself because he he said it has to be that way we we have to do that and i didn't know that until he did that yes i worked at a cemetery called Crestline memorial park um in atlanta georgia and when i was in mortuary school we did talk about caring for jewish families um the Hevra Kadisha comes in and does what they do. And within 24 hours, you're basically burying that person who happens to be of that faith and culture in a pine box. But then we also served a huge Asian population, a huge Black population, a huge white population. And the thing that opened my my eyes as a Black woman from the South, the Deep South, was that though everyone does things a little bit differently, the, at the end of the day, we all want the same things, right? We want to have a safe space to celebrate the life of our loved ones. But what does that look like? And the thing that I tell my students a lot of times is that it's not so much about what you do. It's about what you say and sometimes what you don't say. And so learning to have conversations with people, again, that are different or learning to hold space and appreciate things that are different about people it, it, it's important. And one of the biggest things that I've learned throughout my career is that it is OK sometimes to say that I am unfamiliar with your culture or your practice and I'd like you to teach me. And what that does is that kind of puts the family or the loved one or community in the driver's seat, which they should always be in. As professionals, I think sometimes we get into our egos and we want to take control because we think we know what we're doing. But at the end of the day, we are in service to others. And so asking the question or saying that you don't know or understand certain things puts that family, or if you want to be technical, that consumer back in the driver's seat and gives you the opportunity to learn. That's that's so important. Our, our world is becoming so multicultural. I, I remember when I was growing up that some statistics came out that said that the white race wasn't going to be the dominant race in in the not too distant future in the United States. And people were just beside themselves. They were so upset about that. You know, what, what can we do? Yeah. <laughs> they don't mind going to Chinese restaurants and Mexican restaurants, but they don't want to live with them, you know? And it's just, I thought I, it just kind of blew me away because I was, I was young when that happened. And I just remembered thinking, Aren't they all people? You know, what what difference does it make? Why are you upset? And yeah, that, it, that's a terrifying thought. Um, I I have seen similar articles. I remember there was a Time magazine cover that came out. Oh gosh, I don't remember when, but it was like what humans will look like 
a hundred years from now. And do you do you know what I'm talking about? I see mm-hmm. you nodding over there. Yeah, and I, I remember like, that coming out. Yeah, it was a very ambiguous woman on the front of the cover. Oh, really ambiguous and androgynous because I didn't I don't remember whether she was or they were male or female. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even when we talk about cultural differences, that opens the door to pronouns and identity and just so many different core factors of how we relate to other people. And I think that that fear comes from ignorance because if we really are to think back um, and I'm just looking through the death care lens, many of our practices are rooted in black culture. Hmm. So it's kind of funny to me. um, It's almost comical and ironic at the same time that our death care education, especially here in the United States, is so whitewashed. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really true. I was uh, amazed when I went to Bali. Do you know how they handle deaths in Bali? Have you heard about that? I have not. Please educate me. It it's it was kind of fascinating. We were um, driving one day and. It, it, there was, we didn't drive. Somebody always drove us because it's crazy to drive there. <laughs> and uh, somebody had invited me to to go along on this trip to her to see something that the, the rest of us weren't going to be able to see. And, and it was way kind of out in the country. And so I was getting to see beautiful different things, the, the big uh, fields of rice growing and, and the, the homes. And they do so much with bamboo there that's just fascinating. And we went by this one home that had these um, bamboo, really tall stakes, uh, four of them with uh, like a coffin size, like a wooden coffin size box on top of it. It was all ornately decorated with flowers and it was really beautiful, but it was really tall, way up above where where people could see it unless they were kind of looking from a distance to to see what it was. And I asked about it and they said that that was somebody who was waiting to be buried and they can only bury people on certain days and their whole calendar is different. They don't have 365 days in a year and they only do certain things on certain days within the calendar. And so because the, the bodies deteriorate, they would just put them up away where people didn't see them and didn't smell them and kept them up there at their home, in front of their home, until oh, it was wow. time to bury them. And then if if you didn't have the money to pay for your funeral, there was uh, like this mass grave where they would bury people. And then mm-hmm. when you got the money together, they dig up what was left of the body and, and bury it then. And I thought that was kind of interesting, too. And then I was just talking the other day, interviewing somebody in in Bali, and he said, not only that, but they will dig the bones up and clean them about every Mm. year. Wow. They're not buried in like caskets because they couldn't get to the bones to clean them and put them back in, in the ground. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. Um. And that's actually one of my goals for not necessarily 2024, but 2025. I want to get the Academy full and going full steam um, next year. But in 2025, I actually aspire to travel and witness 
some of what you're talking about. So thank you so much for sharing that story. It reminds me of, um, I know in other cultures, like some Hispanic cultures and also in some African cultures, there's a practice, I believe in Zimbabwe, called turning of the bones or fama diana, where every seven years people are taken out of their, their remains are taken from their graves and marched through the cities and redressed and put back. <laughs> and I've always found that fascinating. I feel like there's something extremely spiritual about that ritual. I don't know if I would necessarily be able to handle my loved one going through that. But again, that that speaks to culture. If that's mm-hmm. your norm, if that that is your practice, then it's not odd or bizarre or even emotional anymore. It's actually beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, I had an experience when I went to uh, Tuscany and we stayed for a while and I, this traveling I did was with a ceramics organization where we'd go and learn how to do different ceramics in different countries. And it was, it was really fabulous. And we stayed at this place that was like a, like a castle on a hill uh, mm-hmm. that had a the wall all the way around it. And you couldn't drive up to it. Normal people couldn't drive up to it. They did have a way now in modern times to be able to deliver food and services and stuff, a road to do that. But regular people had to go up on a funicula. I think that's how you say it, up the side of the hill to get to it. And it it wasn't really a castle, but there, and it wasn't, when I say castle, people think of these big grand things and it wasn't like that. It was more like this walled, village that had one one big room at the end and in that room they do things like have services and weddings and different things down there and while I was there they were having a celebration of somebody who had been very important to them and their church there many years ago like centuries probably ago and I don't know whether it was her death date or her birthday or what it was, but they were celebrating her. And to celebrate her, they carried her bones or relics of her bones, not not her whole whole skeleton, but relics of her bones. Mm -hmm. They carried them through the whole community there, up and down the Mm -hmm. streets and music and singing and lots of stuff going on. And there were a ton of people there. Not that many people lived in this place anymore, but people would come for the celebration. Mm-hmm. And it was just fascinating to to watch this, that the whole celebration was about carrying those bones around the street. You know, that that's utterly beautiful. And you said something just now that made me think about the sacred aspect of things. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, as a funeral professional, it's my job to offer various disposition methods, whether they be cremation, alkaline hydrolysis, green burial, eco-friendly burial, traditional burial, right? But I really think that there, for the sake of this conversation, there's something special about bones. And I wonder if, if we, by expanding our disposition methods to allow us to do away with bones, which are the remnants, that's really all that's left Mm -hmm. from our skeletal system, right? Like our bones and our DNA that's in the bones. I wonder if we are, in a sense, deleting a part of our history with those disposition methods and what that preservation level looks like. Not saying that disposition methods that do away with bones are bad. They're not. Mm -hmm. But 
there has to be something spiritual. There's a spiritual essence with the bones because this is something similar that's that's similar across too many different cultures and too many different geographical locations. Yes. Yeah, that that's amazing to me. The the different things. And I think studying that is really important because we we lose a sense of our history. There's so much history that I don't want to say it's made up. It's not exactly made up, but it's so long ago <laughs> that we don't have anybody who witnessed it. it it's actually right. telling us about it. And we didn't have the ways of writing and publishing and things that we do now. So what we get are, are stories that are passed on. And that's all we have to to build these histories on. Yes. And then they, they're with all the research they're doing around the world with archaeologists and, and things, they're they're finding different bones that are, are left that look different than they anticipated yes. that they were gonna look. So there's there's so much to that. But then there's there are other people that I don't know whether they don't don't want it. Like one of the things that they do here in Hawaii is that you you can have a burial at sea. Mm-hmm. And the bones probably are out there floating around someplace, but trying to put them together with who they could possibly have been isn't going to happen. It's kind of like a funny thought I'm having twofold, like maybe at a thousand years from now, we'll be misidentified as some type of mer people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or I remember when I was a little kid, I used to really think a lot about autopsies for some reason which is so weird now that I think about it. But I thought an autopsy was where you basically open a person's head and there's a movie that plays of their life. Oh, wow. And that's how you find out how they died. Like those last few seconds on that autopsy tape in this person's mind would tell you how they died. But I was reading an article in some type of scientific journal that was stating that they're that blood actually makes a sound. Hmm. And I don't want to say I've heard the sound, but, you know, part of the embalming process is removing the blood from the vascular system, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've always had this feeling when performing autopsies, not autopsies, embalmings, that the blood shouldn't be just put down the drain. It should be stored individually, right? But I can't explain why I've had that feeling. But after reading that article and having this conversation today, I think at some point in the future, it will be possible to almost have like a forensic files type scenario where they're able to look at bloods and string together DNA and project it visually to Mm -hmm. see what a person looks like, not just in theory. Like we know you can look at the DNA of an individual and find out their hair color, their skin tone, things like that. But I think with technology and anthropology working together, there will be a way that through drone research, we can get a visual image of someone on a projector screen. Yeah, I'm sure that that happens or will happen. There's there's so much. I used to be one of my careers was I, I worked as a, a nurse and I had a job. One of my jobs was in the operating room 
Mm-hmm. And I loved it because I loved seeing the inside of, <laughs> of bodies when they're working. <laughs> yes. It yes. was just so fascinating to see all that. And I, I think it would be wonderful for everybody to have the opportunity to see what it really is like inside. We all have a, a concept of it in our minds and we all have a body and we just, I think we could take better care of it if we knew more about it. I agree. And like you, I love seeing the inside of us. Um, I remember the first time I saw an autopsy case, it was at mortuary school. And I remember we went to Popeye's of all places for lunch and we were to report back to the school at four o'clock and go into the anatomy lab. And there was going to be an autopsy body there and some senior level students would be performing the embalming. Right. And we, we could observe they had this huge mirror on the ceiling so that we could look down into the cadaver. And I remember it was almost like that click, 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 click going up a roller coaster. That's the feeling I had inside because I knew once I walked out of that anatomy lab or into that anatomy lab and saw the inside of a human being, I would never be the same again. And the experience for lack of a better description, did not disappoint. It changed the way that I view not only myself, but others. We do a lot of things aesthetically on the outside, which are wonderful. It's it's a gift, right? But when you really see a heart or you see a liver or intestines, and then you see some of the pathological things that happen through sickness, right? It, it For me, it changed and made me so much more in awe of us as human beings. Yes, it, it does. You, you are changed if, if you see things from the inside out. You just you can't help it. Yeah, it, it's really different. But it, it, it almost my work, again, is in diversity, equity, inclusion, cultural competency and advocating for black, you know, decedents and communities, but it also made me realize how much we're all the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All of us have the same colored blood, basically. Yes. You know? The same and, colored organs, unless yeah. you know, they've been damaged in some way. And it's like, how do you create that balance? Or it, for me, it really, I don't, I don't want to, you know, curse on your platform, but it really made me wonder, how did we get it so effed up? That we truly believe that this person is better or worse than this person because of what's on the outside. If yeah. we really thought about what's on the inside. And the thing that like the the most intriguing part for me to see was when people have cranial autopsies, when our brains are taken out and there's nothing there but the inside of your head. Right. And it's like. Everything that we believe about the outside or inside of us is controlled by this, this, this thing. And where did we get this line of separation? Because they're all the same in children and babies and people that are 100 years old, people that are 20 years old, you know, it's it's fascinating. You just brought up a memory for me of when I first started teaching at the university. 
when you're new, frequently you have to share offices. You don't get your own office for a while. And I was sharing office, an office, even though I was teaching writing, I was sharing it with a, a scientist. And for some reason, he had a human brain in a bottle of formaldehyde on the desk that we shared. And we'd never be in the in the same room at the same time. So I never got to, I don't even know what he looked like. I never got to ask him, why is there a brain on my desk? <laughs> but I couldn't help but look at that so often and so deeply and, and uh, thinking about how, well, like everybody's brain is the same color. So why do we mm -hmm. think in think in different colors, you know? Right, right. And it it really uh really was something to contemplate of of how how brains work. How can brains possibly orchestrate what bodies do? Just, Very much true. They're you know they're just a, a blob of stuff. <laughs> right, right. Very, very fragile stuff, though. Isn't mm -hmm. that that's the most like it's fragile. And then for me, I think a lot about the emotional aspect of grief and emotional aspect of, you know, thinking about death and how much an anxiety it creates for a lot of people. And it's like those organs that we're talking about seeing, I don't think that they have emotions. Mm -hmm. I don't think that they have feelings, but I think that they are strongly impacted by our feelings, right? But where in our bodies are those feelings coming from? Like I know I teach a lot about, um, I do something called a grief alchemy and it's aligned with the chakra system and we work through the different stages, the different aspects of grief in conjunction with the chakra system, right? And I know like, okay, our root chakra that has a lot to do with you know, our bottom half and then our intuition is supposedly in our sacral chakra and our identity, you know, just those things like that. But it's like, where do these emotions come from and why are our organs so heavily impacted by them? And then that creates, I guess, the string theory of ripples that goes throughout the universe and creates our reality. And it it just goes so deep. And I, I almost... I'm still trying to figure out what I believe about the afterlife or what happens after we die. But should I have the opportunity to talk to God, I really want to see the universe from the inside out. Oh, wow. Wow. That's a book. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that. <laughs> there, yeah, wow. The universe from the inside out. Okay, Neil Tyson, Degrassi, if you should hear this, call the grave woman, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be the one. That'd be great. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, and I, I, I say that because I feel like we look at it as such like this big complex thing with these planets. And we're supposedly only a minute fraction of our galaxy that exists within this sea of galaxies. But I really wonder what that would look like from a, a mirror pointing down. Mm-hmm and how that coordinates to, or aligns with our physical bodies because it's my belief that we are the cosmos, right? Mm -hmm. You are a planet or galaxy of your own and we're interacting and creating something now, but then we're also using the power of the universe to have this conversation. I'm in South Carolina, you're in Maui. And so we're using that energy and it'll be broadcast back into itself. And I just want to know what that looks like. Does it look like the vascular system? Does it look like the organs? What does it all make? 
You know, I, that reminds me of a couple of things. One was the, the first time that I, I flew in a big jet across the country. And I always mm-hmm. get a window seat because I'm just fascinated with looking out of the window. And yes. I realized that I didn't see any people. And I realized mm-hmm. how many people had to be there underneath me that how insignificant our bodies are <laughs> in the grand <laughs> scheme of things. And that that really uh, really stuck me still has stuck with me all this time that you know we think we're all that and really we're just such a tiny particle of the whole thing. And the other thing that I noticed is how things are similar that don't seem like they'd have any similarity. And to give you an example of that, if if you see a kidney that's cut in half. And mm-hmm. you see what it, it looks like inside with it's it's almost like little rivers that, that have, you know, space in, in between. And I saw a picture of, or not a picture, I saw when I was flying over this one place, it was like a delta where all mm-hmm. of the water came into this area. And I thought, that looks just like a picture of a kidney. And so I started seeing it other places, too. There's so, so many mirrors of things that are are so similar that there's got to be some sort of connection there. There has to be, Emily. And I remember reading, or not even reading, I think it was a video on YouTube. Um, it was like a woman who had done a Sunday soul session with Oprah when she did those, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And she had had a stroke. And her, she lost, of course, consciousness and cognitive function in this realm. But she woke up to herself cosmically and spiritually, I'll say. And even in her stroke and after her stroke, though she had to recover and she, you know, she basically had no connection to anyone who was in her life prior to her stroke because that part of her brain and memories were affected. But her connections to the universe replaced that. And she said that she realized how small her physical was and how massively big her spirit was and for me as a death care worker as a human that is what I desire for all of us like looking at life from the end because I think a lot of people that work in the grief space and the death care space whether it be through our experiences our exposure whatever it is we tend to look at things from the end right Mm -hmm. and we see how massively insignificant small things are, right? And if we can see that in our limited capacity, how much bigger do our spirits see it? And that's that's what I want to work towards is seeing things from, from that perspective on a bigger level. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and your analogy is so on point with the airplane and not seeing any people. When you said that, it literally sent chills through my body because I have experienced that. It's almost like you don't see anyone. You just see this thing that we walk and live on every day, but we don't even see because we're in it. Mhm. Yeah, very much so. Also, I I was thinking about Dr. Eben Alexander. Have you heard of him? I haven't. He wrote a book called Proof of Heaven. Okay. And he is a, a neurologist. 
neuroscientist, really. Everything is just the facts, ma'am, you know? (laughs) Right. He said that he would do surgery on somebody and they'd go, oh, doctor, you don't know what happened. You just wouldn't believe all the things that happened while I was unconscious. And he'd go, yeah, and I, he didn't say it, but he thought, yeah, I wouldn't believe it, <laughs> sort of attitude toward it. And then one day he uh, had a very rapid onset of encephalitis, which destroys your brain from the, mm-hmm. the outside going in. It, it just it just kind of eats away at it. And the, the particular kind of encephalitis that he had was almost always fatal. And it usually didn't take too much time to get to that point because it, it like eats up your brain. And his his family was dealing with him being in a coma and assuming that they were gonna be having to make a decision of when to pull the plug and that sort of thing. And it only lasted a week and he woke up. And when he woke up, he had a lot of coming back into the world to experience because mm-hmm. it, it, you know, things were so different and he, he didn't quite have the memory of everything, but it his memory did all come back. He's working as a, a physician today. And, mm-hmm. and he wrote this book called Proof of Heaven about the experience and where he was when he mm. was unconscious and, and what happened. And he he told some experiences that he had with his family that to him were absolute proof that that actually did happen. And that mm. we are around after we physically die that people are, 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 you can't, I don't know whether you call them people, but the, the essence of the people is still there. Mm. Wow. I truly believe that. And that, again, speaking about culture, that's a big part of my culture, um, whether it be through ancestral veneration or communicating with those that have transitioned physically, like that's been something I've been able to do my whole life. And so there's just so much we don't know. There's so much we don't know. But I think, again, that perspective of looking from the inside out and a conversation my husband and I have been having a lot lately is looking inside your soul Mm -hmm. and deciding what is it that you want? Because for us, the conversation is about career. He's a little bit younger than I am and he's trying to decide, you know, do I want to stay here? Do I want to go back to school? What do I want to do? And the thing I keep telling him is to get still and go inside your soul. Because, yes, um, I know as a man, you want to provide, you want to protect, and you want to ensure we have a great life financially. But at the same time, what feeds you, right? And again, that perspective of looking from the end back, when I think about the end, the last question I want to ask my husband is about money. Mm -hmm. When I think about us saying goodbye to each other for the last time. But what is it that feeds your soul? What, What is it that nurtures your soul? And I wonder a lot of times when I'm working with deceased individuals, was was your life worth it to your soul? Is your is your exit truly an exit or is it a beginning because maybe your soul wasn't fed? And I'm not talking about through religion or through dogma, but through everyday experiences and like conversations like this. I love I'm so grateful for this opportunity because I love conversations like this. This is 
feeding my soul. It's making me ask some really deep questions within myself and hearing your thoughts. And I, I'm just so appreciative. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for being here. I just realized how long we've talked. So we need to kind of wind this up. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate you being here today. And I'm sure we, we are going to have a lot of people doing some deep thinking after they listen to this conversation. I hope so. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure we will. We can't help it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being my guest. And I I'm so appreciate you being here. I, as you said, I enjoy this kind of conversation because it's the kind of conversations we need to have about what's really real in, in our yeah. lives. Yeah, I do. And thank you, Jane. I'm pretty sure you'll hear this. Thank you for connecting us. Jane yeah. Asher, um, author of The Next Room. Yeah, that's another really good book that's kind of on this subject. So I, I yes. recommend that one highly. I also recommend The uh, Proof of Heaven by Dr. Eben Alexander. Also, the, those two books, well, both of them will make you think like you never have before. <laughs> so thank you. And to my guests, we'll have the in the show notes the links so that you can find The Grave Woman online. Or you can search for The Grave Woman because I don't think there's another one out there besides <laughs> you. <laughs> there's not. It's just me. I'm The Grave Woman everywhere. So yeah. just look me up on social media, my website, YouTube, podcast everywhere. That's wonderful. So thank you all for listening. And I hope you think a lot. And uh, let me know what you think. I'd, I'd really like to hear some feedback on, on these things that we talked about today. And I'll see you next time and have another wonderful guest for you to listen to. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.